Pastor One introduced the series and preached the first couple sermons, and now I'm adding to it the third one. I am going to be preaching from the title, What Makes Our Unity Subversive? So talking about what makes our unity subversive. And (laughs) a lot of times, um, being subversive, subversiveness, is in the eye of the beholder. It's defined by the reaction or the impact on the people and the systems on the outside looking in on our actions, on our ideas. Beyond just being countercultural, subversiveness violates the truths, it violates and dismantles the realities that underlie the cultures around it, around whatever the subversiveness is. And that understandably creates a reaction in these people, in these systems. People generally don't like change, and the more people you add to a group, the more people involved in a system, the more difficult change will be and the more resistance you'll get to change. Especially when you're talking about existential or fundamental change. So this idea of subversives reminds me of a couple of things. The first thing is a quote. It's one of those quotes you see on a poster on a dorm room wall. And the quote is, if you tell me something's impossible... Don't stand in my way while I prove you wrong. Sometimes subversiveness is upsetting because it triggers guilt or conviction in the people who are witnessing it. It reminds us that there's a difference between things we can't do because no one can do them and the things we don't do because we're not brave enough or strong enough. Subversiveness reminds us that our worldviews are full of artificial limits. These are limits that we create to justify and excuse our fears and shortcomings. These are limits, artificial limits, that reflect our values and our biases. And that leads to the second thing that this idea of subversiveness brings to mind for me, and, and that's the the 1921 massacre in the Greenwood neighborhood of Tulsa, Oklahoma. A lot has been said about this massacre recently, so I'm not going to go into it. I don't have the time to really do the story justice. So I'll just say that the massacre was a terrorist attack that happened because there was a thriving and wealthy black community. And the idea of this black community being wealthy and thriving was subversive to the American society at that time. It would still be subversive now, but it was more subversive (laughs) in the 20s, (laughs) the 1920s. Um, So the idea of a group of black people living better than their white neighbors, the idea of this group these hundreds, thousands of black people living the American dream was so offensive to the God of white supremacy 
that those who worshiped this God decided that this community could no longer exist. And so you had the local government, government officials, arming and deputizing a horde of these white neighbors to bomb and burn this neighborhood and to kill the people who live there. This is the nature of subversiveness. Even when the, the intent of the subversive action is good or when you're not thinking about how it impacts the people around you, even when people are just living their everyday lives in a way that's different, you can't have a truly subversive idea without breaking a few eggs. In our passage today, Philippians 1, 17 through 2, 18, Paul uses himself and Jesus as examples of the unique ways he was encouraging the Christians at Philippi to live their everyday lives. And he goes on to talk about the blessings and the consequences that they experience for living differently. As you can guess from the fact that we're in a series called Subversive Unity, the, exempt, or the emphasis for Paul was on this idea of community, on, on unity. And this is unity with God and unity with each other. For us, these verses offer a similar gift. They define the way that Christians live in community as distinct from the way our society and, and, human, and even human nature encourages us to live. Now, 33 verses is a lot to cover in a sermon, so we're going to talk about it in five different sections that represent different approaches, different aspects to our unity. And in the passage, unified Christians are challenged to be gospel-focused. They're challenged to be self-sacrificing. They're challenged to be like-minded. They're challenged to be humble. And they're challenged to be submitted. So we'll examine these different aspects of our unity so that we can gain a better understanding of what makes that unity subversive. So the way this is going to work, I'm going to, because it's 33 verses, and I'm not going to just sit here and read 33 verses to you. You're going to read it in the five chunks. And each of these times, just so you're prepared, I'm going to ask you to stand while I read it, and we will, we will do it as we normally do the readings, um, where I read it, and I say, this is the word of the Lord. You say, thanks be to God. Um, so just be prepared. This is going to happen five times. So let's start with our first passage, Philippians 1, 17 to 18. So if you could stand for the reading of God's word. And it reads, the former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you can be seated. So our first section speaks to the centrality of the gospel in our unity. The message is, in this setting, more important than the messenger. 
the purpose is more important than the personality. And what binds us is not our allegiance to a human leader or to a political party. The gospel of Jesus is so important, so central, that the vehicle for it being delivered to us becomes secondary. Paul is just glad that the gospel is being preached, even though the preachers are actively working against him as they deliver it. That's the motive of their heart. And it's important to note a few things, the first of which is that Paul's not talking about them preaching a false gospel. Because if that was happening, he would point it out, because he points it out every other time it happens. So these are people who are preaching the word rightly divided, but the motives of their hearts are wrong. And that's what Paul is talking about in this setting. And obviously, we're starting in the, in the middle of the story here. Um, Pastor One introduced this passage last week and talked more about the first few verses of the section. So I'm not going to rehash it completely. But Paul is distinguishing between two types of preachers. Those who preach with selfish motives and those who preach with loving motives. Paul mainly talks about this first group, the ones who are preaching with selfish motives, because apparently there are several preachers who are preaching the gospel with the goal of advancing themselves, with the goal of taking advantage of the fact that Paul is in jail to undermine him. So I have preached uh, here at this church maybe 15, 20 times in the past few years. And in that time, it's never crossed my mind to overthrow Pastor David or (laughs) take advantage of a stint of jail time for him, which has not happened. Um, But that's never been my motive. But at the same time, I am not going to say that every time I've gotten into this position that I've had the right motives. That's just not true. My motives have not been pure every single time that I've preached. For example, I found out last Sunday that I was writing my sermon for the wrong passage. Um, And it was because of a clerical error that was not on my behalf. Um, But that error added some extra verses. Um, Ten extra verses, to be precise. And I could have edited my sermon. I could have made it. I could have focused on the... 23 verses instead of the 33, but to me, preaching 33 verses felt like a personal challenge. (laughs) And it felt like an, an interesting narrative challenge to try to make a cohesive sermon out of that many verses. Did I pull it off? We'll see in 25 minutes or so. (laughs) But (laughs) the point is, that this might be a convenient interpretation of Paul's words um, based on my own motives going into this sermon, but I read them to say that my motives and the motives of any preacher are not the point of the sermon. From the perspective of the hearer, the point of any sermon is that the gospel is shared. And if anyone's done, um, Pastor David does a, a preaching cohort training, and his One of his points is that every sermon has to somewhere include the gospel because that is the point of preaching, that the gospel is heard. And if that happens, if the gospel is preached, why 
however it's preached, there's a reason to rejoice at the hearing, the publishing of the good news. The gospel is the point. The gospel is central to our faith. It's central to our unity. And it's central to our preaching. So my personality, my style, my motives, all of that is secondary. However, please hear this. Paul says at the beginning of the next chapter that we should do nothing, preaching included, out of selfishness or vanity. So while Paul is saying that it's okay that they have these motives because the gospel's being advanced, where you can still rejoice in the advancement of the gospel, he's still saying that having selfish and vain motives is sin. So how do these two ideas line up? Because it feels like he's saying different things, but he's not. What I hear him saying in this is that Paul can still focus on the advancement of the gospel even while these people are preaching from vain and, to him, destructive motives because he trusts God. He trusts God to be the judge of the preacher's motives, so he doesn't have to. The gospel can be central in our unity because we all know our roles and we are all playing our roles. And we're not putting ourselves into the role of God. According to, to James 4, we are hearers and we are doers of the law. And God is the judge of the law. And God is the one who decides when his law is broken and he decides what he's going to do about it. And he goes on to promise us that he will protect us when those sins are attempting to harm us. So because of that, we can focus just on the gospel. And this is good news for me because it would be difficult for me to sit through a sermon and try to discern the motives of the preacher preaching to me. I can just be listening. The other part of this that's good news for me is that God is not waiting for me to get my act together. God is not saying I can only preach when my motives are 100% pure. Because we would probably hear far fewer sermons from anybody if that was the case. Now, I am striving for pure motives. I'm striving for, for more holiness. I'm striving for stronger faith. Because like Paul said, I haven't arrived. And that is the challenge of the Christian life, to be striving. And there are some ways in which I want my faith to be stronger so that I can have faith in myself. But that's not how this works. We keep our focus on the gospel to protect us from the self-reliance that's preached by the world. That is where we are different from the world. They are challenging us to rely on ourselves where our gospel is challenging us to rely on God, on Jesus. Uh, Colin Smith, a pastor, put it this way. We are not saved by having faith in our own faith. You can think about it as someone standing on the ice. What makes you safe is not how confident you are when you're standing, but how strong the ice is that you're standing on. Uh, 
You can be very confident on thin ice and still go down. Or you can be very shaky on thick ice and you will stand firm. You are not saved by the strength of your faith. You are saved by the strength of your Savior. And so that's why our focus is on the gospel because that is where the strength of our unity lies. And next we'll talk about how our unity is subversive because it values self-sacrifice. Even though our society values hedonism. So if you could stand to join me for the reading of God's word. Uh, this next section is Philippians 1, 19 through 26. And it reads, yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in this body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain. And I will continue with all of you for your progress and your joy in the faith. So that through my being with you, again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. So in, in this situation, Paul is recognizing just how dire his situation is. He's imprisoned as an enemy of the Roman Empire and facing the very real prospect of execution because that's how the Roman Empire rolled. And he shares this sort of stream of consciousness as he wonders if it's better for him to hope to die or hope to survive. And similar to the last section, he acknowledges that, that Jesus will be glorified whether he lives or dies. Paul says to live is Christ. Mirroring his declaration in his letter to the Galatians, in Galatians 2.20, where it reads, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And then he says, in this letter, to die is gain. Because in death... He will be absent from the body, but present with Jesus. So in essence, he's choosing between being Christ on earth or being with Christ in heaven. And in his mind, these are um, both good choices. But he recognizes that being dead and being with Jesus is better by far. This echoes um, what Jesus said in, um, in his story about his visit to the home of Mary and Martha. In Luke 10, um, Jesus is visiting Mary and Martha, and throughout the visit, um, Martha's working feverishly to be a good host. She's cleaning, she's cooking, she's serving, um, and the entire time, Mary is just sitting at Jesus' feet and listening to Jesus. 
And when Martha complains that Mary's leaving all the work to her, Jesus says that Mary has chosen the better thing. She's made the better choice by opting for presence over duty. But here, the opposite is true. As Pastor One said in the last sermon, or in the first sermon that opened the series, wisdom looks different based on the context. In the context of the story of Mary and Martha, presence with Jesus was the, the better thing. But in the context of this situation, even though being with Jesus being dead was better by far, what is best is for him to live and serve to remain dutiful. Paul looks or has to look past himself, past his comfort, past his joy. And he decides what's best is sacrificing himself and continue to live so the people he cares about can continue to experience growth and joy in their faith. Even within the context of this decision, he's demonstrating what it means to be Jesus on earth because he's making the same choice that Jesus made. Jesus chose to sacrifice his time in heaven to be with us on earth so that we could have fellowship with God and we could have eternal life. And our unity calls for us to similarly make sacrifices of ourselves, just like Paul did, just like Jesus did. It requires us to choose what is best for our community, our church, our God, our kingdom, over what is best or better for us. And this is naturally subversive because we live in a society where we're told we cannot resist our appetites, our comfort, our pleasure, um, and in some case, the comfort and pleasure of our families is the barometer for what is good in our society, regardless of the cost to our neighbors, the routes of the cost to our planet, regardless of the cost of our souls. We eat when we're hungry. We <clears throat> work when it's fulfilling. We donate when it's rewarding. We connect when it's comfortable. We commit when it's beneficial. We believe when we're fully convinced. And we dissociate when we're overwhelmed. Proving that we are able to put others' needs above our own, given these realities of our society, is what makes our unity subversive. And in the same way, um, our like-mindedness is also a a hallmark of this subversive unity. So you can all stand for the reading of God's word. Um, our next section is going to be Philippians 1, 27 to 2, verse 2. And it reads, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a, manner, in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God, for it is granted 
to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now here I still have. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, any common sharing the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. This is the word of the Lord. Get me seated. So, this was an interesting section of the passage because for the most part it's pretty straightforward. Just be like-minded is the basic message. But it starts off in, a, in somewhat of a strange way, talking about worth. In my Bible, uh, the NIV version, um, the section is titled, A Life Worthy of the Gospel. So as a therapist, I see a significant amount of damage done in relationships, done to ourselves, in the name of feeling unworthy. The common theme among these patients or clients is an intense focus on themselves, what they've done or what's been done to them to make them feel unworthy, what they can do to prove they're worthy, what they can not do to prove that they're actually worthy, why someone else won't acknowledge their worthiness, what being unworthy means they can't do or must do, what they have to do to hide the fact that they're not worthy so they can still get love. That is a function of our society, a function of our culture. When your identity is based on rugged individualism and boundless hedonism, then if you aren't feeling good and you're supposed to feel good all the time, then it's because something is wrong with you. And it's up to you to fix it. That's the message that we're getting from our society. And if we're honest, the church is absolutely complicit in advancing that message. Um, So regardless of the reassurances that these verses give, I'm sorry, regardless, the reassurance that these verses give, again, is a message that it's not about me or you as an individual. What makes us worthy is our unity and like-mindedness. That's what makes us a worthy representative of the gospel. The good news is that we're reconciled through Christ to God and to one another. So why would living out a gospel of reconciliation be all about what we do as individuals? We manifest and we demonstrate the gospel for the world around us by being unified, by being like-minded. Now, being like-minded is not the same as being hive-minded. It's unity, not uniformity. It it would be a waste of time for God to have created us as diverse, as different, as unique, as special, just to force us to be identical again. And God does not waste time that way. In his letter to the Corinthians, Paul used the body metaphor to, to talk about how we can have different gifts, different personalities, different purposes, but have the same spirit. And again in this letter, Paul talks about us having the common foundation of the Holy Spirit and the common example of Jesus Christ. We work together in a united effort 
to advance one faith. We have the same love. And when we are opposed by the various elements of society and culture that we're subverting, and we will be, we aren't afraid because we're standing together. And so, in this way, our unity is subversive because we are like-minded, because we are not following the world's example to be individuals, to be relativistic, to be, to have our own truths. So we are like-minded because we are following the same spirit, the same God, with the same goal. And from there, Paul goes on to talk about the subversive quality of humility. He used Jesus as the ultimate example of how humble we can be in our unity. So please stand for the reading of the word. Our next section is going to be Philippians 2, 3 to 2, 11. And it reads, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality God with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord can be seated. So just so we're clear, I'm not, I'm doing this in part because I like breaking up the, the verses so that you can remember what they are, but I'm having you stand and, and recite the thanks be to God together because it's an example of something that we do in unity. When we are hearing the sermon, there's very little <laughs> that we do in unity. We're just listening and we're all hearing different things. But when we stand together and hear the word, and when we recite our response, it's something that we do in unison. It's an example of unity, so there's a purpose. There's a method to the madness. So, in thinking about this passage, and thinking about Jesus, you realize that Jesus could have come to earth as a gentrifier. He could have walked around in his glorified body the whole time or just every once in a while, but he chose not to. He could have said, this place is great. It's, it's, it's beautiful. Everything is just so, so real. <laughs> but you know what you need? A street of gold. Not all of them, just one street of gold. And you could really use a, a sea of glass. Not, not all the seas, just maybe that black one over there can be glass. And it would be great if we get a legion or two of angels to do some extra patrols. Um, just at night, you won't even know they're here. But luckily, that's not what Jesus chose to do. 
I work for an organization called Londell Christian Health Center. And one of our organizational values is what we call being proximate. Our staff are encouraged to live, to shop, to eat um, near our clinic's locations. And a lot of our staff do. Um, for me, the purpose of being proximate is empathy. Living around someone, living as they live, doing daily life together, helps you understand their experience. Not filtered through the lens of your experience, but through the lens of their experience. And Jesus chose to live life with us, not through the lens of a divine being on earth, but as a human being. He chose not to be a gentrifier. He, he chose to fully experience both the very best and the very worst of what our lives have to offer. He chose not just to be human, but to be mortal. And in choosing to be mortal, he made himself subject to death. And not just death, but a humiliating and painful death. And that humiliating and painful death involved false accusations and, and the unjust legal system, rejection by his community, abandonment by his closest friends, isolation from his father. Jesus used his divine privilege to give us all a voice in heaven, to give us access to God through prayer, to, to give us the hope of glory, to give us the promise of salvation, of life everlasting. But he used his humility and his humiliation to give us an advocate, a high priest, who can not only sympathize but empathize with our weakness and our pain. He gave us a friend that the least of us could identify with. And on top of all that, he gave us an example of how to be humble in our unity. He taught us how to choose service. He taught us how to not use our privilege against each other or just to benefit ourselves. And he taught us that true promotion comes from God. And that our only ambition should be bringing God glory through obedience. And that leads to my final point. That our unity is subversive because we are called to be submitted. So if you could stand one last time. Um, for the reading of God's word. And this last section is Philippians 2, 12 to 18. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you firmly hold to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. So our society, our nation is built on the notions of 
of conquest, both personal and professional, and on manifest destiny. In many cases, our society uses God to justify our actions and their consequences as we strike out on our own, blaze our own trail, or live life on our own terms. So it's subversive when the people of God establish their unity and submission, when they maintain oneness by intentionally and openly submitting to God and submitting to one another. We see in these verses how the Philippians submit to Paul's teaching. They are obedient to the things that they learn from him about Jesus, about the word of God. And Paul's words become a jumping off point for them to figure out what being saved truly means. As Paul also reminds the Philippians, God is working in us and through us. And this work impacts not just our actions, but our desires. And most importantly, when we submit to him, our actions and desires fall in line with his will. We meet his goals, which are good for us and good for our community and good for his kingdom. We also see how the submission to God and his will allows us to be in line with each other. It gives us a single purpose that makes being like-minded easier. It also focuses and reinforces our humility since we can't be submitted and proud at the same time. As beings that were created to worship, we can't stay humble very long if we don't find someone to submit to. It's best if that someone is our creator as the one most deserving of our submission and the one in whose hands our will is safest. Like us, the Philippians were surrounded by a warped and crooked culture. The goal of submission to God was for them and for us to stand out. We were never intended to just be more ingredients for the melting pot. We are intended to shine among the darkness like stars. This is another way to explain holiness being set apart, being different. And when you think about it, holiness is, or when you think about it, subversiveness is just what holiness looks like from the outside, from the perspective of the people that we're set apart from. And our unity is subversive because the world convinces people that the things that make our unity possible are not available to them or anyone else. So while we experience our unity as joy, as fellowship, as community, to someone else it may be foreign or fake or even offensive. Living in unity, um, subversive or, or otherwise, can seem just as daunting to us as Christians. But at the end of the day, subversive unity is just love. It's patient. It's kind. It doesn't keep record of wrong. It rejoices with the truth. It's not self-seeking. It casts out fear. It's not proud. This concept is not a, a new thing. It's another way of thinking about what you're already doing, what you're already working on. 
And I know that every sermon can feel like just another thing on your Christian to-do list. But like Jesus said, it all boils down to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's pretty much the entire Bible. It's just instructions and encouragements to do those things and stories about what happens when we do them and stories about what happens when we don't. Doing those things, doing them well, automatically sets you apart. It will sometimes set you in opposition to people who aren't doing those things well. But it will always set you in opposition to the devil. Our unity is most subversive to his kingdom. And he will always be offended when his kingdom is threatened. That was the experience of Jesus as our role model. And we have to prepare for that to be our experience as well. Jesus, in his life, in his ministry, in his message promised that we would be saved, not safe. He promised that we would be comforted, not comfortable. He lived his life the way he did. He died his death the way that he did so that we wouldn't be surprised when the things that he said came true. He didn't want us to be surprised when living like him meant suffering like him, meant dying like him, because we are living a life, we are living a unity, we're living a faith that is subversive. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, we thank you um, for today. We thank you that you are speaking to us through one another. You're speaking to us through our love for one another and that you are glorified when we are loving, when we are like-minded And Lord God, we thank you for your protection when our love, when our unity threatens the people, the systems around us, and the kingdom of the enemy. So Lord God, show us how to be loving. Show us how to love you with all of our heart and soul and mind and might. And show us how to love our neighbors as ourselves. In Jesus' precious name, amen.